The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we revenge of speaking to you, a God of great faithfulness. You made us and you sustain us. You spoke promises to us throughout your word and you have been faithful to carry out many of them. Not all of them, yet. We see you in your character. We see you in your faithfulness to do what you say to sustain what you make. And thankfully, Lord, you give us good reason then to believe you for more tomorrow. And so we know that when we pray as you taught us to pray through your Son, your kingdom come and your will be done, that as we look at it partially come now, we can say thank you for that and believe your faithfulness to finish that off. And bring the kingdom in fullness to carry out all of your will. That has not yet happened, but it will. Thank you for that. Thank you for the promise. Thank you for the evidence of your faithfulness, of your trustworthy, steadfast nature. Thank you for grace that moves in our hearts to cause us to believe. And thank you for the assurance of a tomorrow that is full of glory. Even though today is not. You are a good God. We say thank you. We ask for light today that as we look at this passage and think about what's in it, that you would grow our minds, grow our understanding of truth and then grow our living out of and walking in truth. Help us to walk through our days here thankful and hopeful at the same time. You've done much and you will do more. Bless your name. Bless your name, Father, Son, and Spirit. Build your church. Call people into your church. Call some here to faith, Lord. Save, please. And those who are your people, build us. That your kingdom may come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Second Samuel chapter 19 and the return of King David. We've been following David now for several books here, in fact, First and Second Samuel, and most recently in these chapters... We've been following him through the rebellion of Absalom that, that sprang up, that took wing, that flew, that grew, that seemed nearly omnipotent as it rose in ascendancy. Him chasing, he chased down David, chased him out of the city, out into the wilderness, and gathered a massive army to pursue him to put David to death. But that's not how it happened. David's forces were victorious and Absalom was killed, condemned and hung on a tree, figuratively executed under a great big pile of stones. 
good news. God brought upon him the judgment that he said he would. He wiped away that evil rival king. Good news to everybody except David, as we saw last week. We read that and we see in it what is right and what is just, what God had promised and what God fulfilled. And we take from it great assurance for our own lives as we look out at a world that is full of evil. We recognize that God has said and God will. He said that he would wipe away all evil and bring his king and his kingdom to peace. And we rejoice in that. But the tension last week in the chapter was that David did not. David wanted that sort of but he also wanted to compromise because he, he loved this son, wicked though he was. And there was in that for us a warning that we, while appropriately grieving over those who are lost, we should be careful and, and rejoice in the fact that God has said he will eliminate evil. Not just out there, but he will make war on evil in here. So we see God's deliverance from evil and His non-compromising nature with sin. Joab saw that clearly and, and spoke to David some, some harsh words and brought David back around. And by the end of last week's chapter, verse 8, he was sitting again in the gate, the place of the king. He had kind of taken his seat again as the ruler over those who were with him. However... He's still in a faraway city. He, he, technically, he's still within the bounds of Israel, but he is out. He's away from Jerusalem on the other side of the Jordan River, out in the wilderness. He's not come back. And that's, that's where we, we are at the beginning of this passage this morning, chapter 19, verse 9. We're going to see the return of the king. And, and what we'll see is, is a mixed bag as far as returns go. There is good and there is not good in this return. And as we look at that, it's going to teach us some things about the place that we live right now with the kingdom that has come but has not yet come. The kingdom that is not what it must be. And it will teach us to, to think rightly about that and to long for more and to approach life in this kingdom now properly. Because we're going to consider today in the last half of Second Samuel chapter 19, let me read the passage, beginning in verse 9 all the way through the end of the chapter, and then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand some of the details before making a couple of overarching observations. So here's Second Samuel 19, beginning in verse 9. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? when the word of all Israel has come to the king. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return. 
both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? that you should this day be as an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes, from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I will ride on and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go on a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chinham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. 
And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desired of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went with him. And all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Behold, the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. The word of the Lord. The passage begins and ends with Judah and Israel contesting with each other. It's Israel, as in the ten northern tribes, and Judah, the great, big, large southern tribe. They were in tension. They had been before. Remember, that was one of the things that Absalom exploited in the rebellion, that David played favorites towards Judah. So this this tension between the two had existed before, and and here it is again. Verse 9 depicts the people of Israel. They'd, They'd backed Absalom. They fled from battle, and they are now wondering, what should we do about a king? King David had been a great, powerful king for us. The one that we picked as king is dead at the hands of King David, but David has not come back. He's still away. Shouldn't we go invite him home? I don't know who else it would be, and he was pretty good, I guess. It's kind of the posture. Shouldn't we bring him back? That's the talk in Israel. And David hears about it and evidently welcomes it, but he also needs Judah, his home tribe, to back him. So he sends word to them. He needs Judah. You you might think they would be on his side automatically because he's flesh and blood with them, as he says. But the rebellion had started at Hebron in Judah. And Amasa, that he mentions here, had been the commander of Absalom's army, and he's from the tribe of Judah. So there'd been a few, if, if not many, from Judah itself that had not backed David, and so he needs them to back him too. He can't become king with his own tribe against him. He sends word, Hey, we're brothers. Shouldn't you back me too? And by the way, Amasa, I am fed up with Joab. Joab is not the commander of the army anymore. Joab had had slaughtered Absalom against David's orders. And so he gets kicked out, and he's going to invite in in a tremendous, a tremendous... How? Who would think to invite the commander of the army that you just fought against to be the commander of your own army? In a tremendous ass act of mercy, you will be the commander of my army. And with that, he swayed all of Judah, and they said, we're behind you, and they came. Came to meet him at Gilgal, near the Jordan. It comes back up again at verse 40. They're at Gilgal, Judah, and half the tribes of Israel, and that shortly turns into a big argument. That's the bookends, the tribes. And in the middle, meanwhile, we get these stories of these individuals. People that we have met before. If you were here over the last number of weeks and number of months, you'll, you'll recognize some of these names. 
These were folks that David, all, in, all of which were encountered by David as he fled out of the city. And so what we have is a, a reversing of fortunes in this return, not just a geographic literal as he walked out and then walks back over the same ground, but he's kind of relationally passing back and forth through the same people also. Verse 16, Shimei the Benjaminite, last time we met him, David was walking out of Jerusalem, mourning, fleeing Absalom, and Shimei was walking along the, the hill beside the road, cursing him, calling down the curses of God on David and throwing rocks at him. And he's singing a different tune now. With a thousand men, he comes confessing his sin and his guilt. He rushed to be the first to meet David, and he falls down pleading for mercy and pledging allegiance, offering to do anything. Whatever's your pleasure, that's what I'm going to do. And I brought along some guys to help. Which sounds great, but it's not. The text makes clear in connecting him to Ziba, the deceiver, talk about him in a moment, and in pointing out that he rushes to get there first after everybody else has already decided to bring the king back into power. And by the fact that later, at the end of David's life, David says to Solomon, take care of this guy. The text makes very clear that this is all charade. It's prudent. Shimei can... See which way the wind's blowing. It looks good, but it's not. But David responds graciously. Abishai, as usual, wants to kill him. These guys hold true to character. <laughs> they hold true to character. The answer is, we should kill him. Always. That's, that's Abishai and his brother's answers. And David says, no. Because, verse 22, today is a day of victory. I know that today I am king. They've brought me back. I am king over Israel and Judah. Today is a day of victory and celebration and graciousness. It's not a day of bloodshed. If I kill him and all the guys he brought with him, which I could, that will be a problem for this brand new kingdom that I'm trying to put back together. So he spreads peace. A gracious accepting of this man. Same attitude that he has with Mephibosheth and Ziba. Mephibosheth, it's come up before, son of Jonathan, a descendant of Saul, whom, to whom David had shown great kindness by inviting him into his own household to eat at his table. Mephibosheth is lame in both feet, can't walk. David had invited him in and had given him back the land that Ziba had been kind of squatting on. Ziba, the servant of Saul, had been living on this land, but it belonged to Ziba's family. And David took that land and gave it back to Mephibosheth. But when he fled, Ziba came and said, Mephibosheth isn't coming because he thinks now he's going to become king. And David, in foolishness, believed him and gave that land back to Ziba. Hard to follow all the land transactions here. Mephibosheth shows up now, and it's obvious that Ziba was lying. He has not been trying to become king. He's been letting himself go in mourning. He's a wreck. Because his heart is with David. 
David responds to that, perhaps tests it with this, okay, I'm going to give you half the land. It could be what's behind that, to, to test the genuine commitment. And Ziba, Ziba gets part of the land, and Mephibosheth gets David's table, which is why he does not care. This is, this is a beautiful point, which is stated right there. Let him have it all. Who cares? You're back. What a perspective. He cares for David, as does Barzillai, the third individual that we meet in the chapter, in the middle here. Barzillai, this elderly man who had supported David when he fled out of the land. He had been one of those men who fed David and his men, who supported him from all of his great wealth. And Obviously, it says that he's an elderly man, and he travels back with David, but really just wants to go home and, and die at peace in his own bed. The emphasis is on David thankful to him and him receiving a, a blessing from David and then passing it on to his servant for all the good that he did to David in his hour of need. He supported the kingdom when it looked bad. And the king kisses him and blesses him and sends him on his way. That's the passage with these two pieces at either end of the, of the tribes and in the middle of these individuals. And what it presents for us is something sort of big picture, large scale, political, and then something very personal in the middle. And so I'm going to kind of approach it through those, those two windows there, looking at the, the big picture, the higher level a little bit, and then bring it down to us at a more personal level and say, what's life like in this big situation? I'm going to make two observations kind of along those lines. Here's the first one. The kingdom has come truly but imperfectly. The kingdom has come truly but imperfectly. If you could stop and look at all of this and take in the whole big picture of these last several chapters, this passage would appear as remarkable as it actually is. In chapter 15, Absalom deceived and stole away the hearts of the men of Israel, and David ran for his life. And we see him passing out of the city, off into the wilderness to... Remember, these are all the, the words dropped in that chapter. Out into the wilderness to wander mourning and weeping and barefoot as he ascends up the Mount of Olives. There should be somebody ringing in our ears. We, we hear Christ in that. But David is cast out and rejected and leaves. And then here we are. How did this happen? It's been completely reversed overturned, the Lord's anointed is honored and accepted. His fortunes literally reverse as he comes across the Jordan and comes to Gilgal. Why did he come to Gilgal? That's mentioned twice there. Why there? Because of what Gilgal is. Gilgal is this special place in Israel for consecration, dedication, and renewal. When Israel first after all of its wilderness wanderings first crossed into the land under Joshua way back, they stopped at Gilgal after they crossed the Jordan, dedicating themselves to the Lord and saying, now here in this place, 
God through us establishes His kingdom. And then years later, after the period of the judges, when Saul was anointed king, the first king, he went to Gilgal to, as the text tells us, renew the kingdom of God. And here now David comes to Gilgal. They didn't meet him at the river site. They didn't meet him in another big city at this place because the kingdom is being refreshed. Version 2.0 is coming back. Or is coming. This is God saying, here's my anointed. You rejected him and sent him out, but I bring him back. And let's all gather at Gilgal to be really clear about that. This is the kingdom of God renewed now in David. It includes all the tribes of Israel, both Israel and Judah. It includes former rebels and friends. David reigns over all of them. He gives orders and they are carried out. Friends and enemies both are brought in. This is the kingdom. And yet, it is imperfect. It's come, truly, But if you just look at the individual subjects, it's a mixed bag. There are rats in the kingdom. People who are just giving lip service that care nothing whatsoever for the king. Yeah, there there are people of great loyalty. There's Barzillai and Mephibosheth, and there's Shimei and Ziba. And they're both there. But most importantly, look at the tribes. What, turn, what starts out as a discussion, almost a slight competition of who can be the first one to bring David back, doesn't get past the end of the chapter. Verse 40 is beautiful. The king went on to Gilgal, and Shimham went with him, and all the people of Judah, they brought the king on his way. And verse 41, Then the rest of Israel showed up and said to Judah, why did you rush this? Why didn't you let us come? What, what are you doing stealing away the king? And it was our idea anyway. And we're ten times as big as you. We have ten shares and you have one. And then Judah says, we didn't take anything from the king's household. And besides, he's our brother. And they have a church split almost before the ink's dry. And what follows immediately after, but the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. This is not a a discussion. They almost come to blows here. And the very next verse, which we didn't read because it's going to come up next week. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri. And he blew the trumpet and another revolt breaks out. I mean, look at chapter 20. Another revolt from among Israel that involves another murder. Joab's going to kill Amasa. Joab's amazing. And Israelites are going to gather around an Israelite city and threaten to tear it down and destroy it to get at this rebel. Like the kingdom starts and goodness gracious, the thing falls apart immediately. And we are right back in rebellion. It has really, truly come. The kingdom has come. They come to Gilgal. It is, it is set up. David is anointed. He is the king. It all falls apart. Sand through his fingers. Something is clearly wrong here. It, 
It is not as bad as the rebellion of Absalom, and it is not as the whole thing is not as bad as the book of Judges, but we keep going ahead and back, ahead and back. And if this is what the great the return of the king looks like, boy, that's disappointing. Here it is, a reality, something that has indeed truly happened, but is also indeed significantly compromised. What are we supposed to learn from that? We are supposed to see in that something that teaches us about what the kingdom we are in now is like. This is another step in the very same parallel that we have seen developed with David and the son of David, despised and rejected and sent out, and yet enthroned as the kingdom is really truly set up, and yet it is a really truly broken kingdom that we live in right now. We, we live in the kingdom. The kingdom has indeed come already, but it is not yet what it should be. This is the way it is. The Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, make extremely clear that the rejection of Jesus is his enthronement. John writes so that when we read of the soldiers mocking him and bowing down to him, Hail, King of the Jews, and they put a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns, that he is being crowned. And he is enthroned when? When he is lifted up before all men, King of the Jews, written above his head, John makes crystal clear to us the irony in that situation. The kingdom has indeed come, raised from the dead to prove it. He reigns. And yet He always, in every aspect of our lives right now, reigns in a world, in a kingdom of brokenness. We live right now in a kingdom that is characterized by the cross and not in a kingdom that is characterized by glory. We are right now, to, to use words that are used theologically, we are right now the church militant and suffering, not the church triumphant and celebrating. And, and that's what we are right now. That, that's real and true. taught to us here so that we can kind of intellectually gather that in and, and not be surprised by it. We read through what happened with David here. God is for certain in that. He tells us several chapters ahead, the Lord foiled Ahithophel's counsel because he intended to bring Absalom to harm. God did it. God foiled the attempt to overthrow the king. God restored the king in the kingdom. God set him up. God did that. And so when we read now about the kingdom running through his fingers, we should not say, God didn't do that. God messed that one up. God was incapable of completing the job. He already did remarkable things in bringing David back. The only logical conclusion is that this is what God intended. 
God meant for that kind of kingdom to come. Compromised and mixed. Why? I, I probably would have made the kingdom be awesome. Because that's what I'd make the kingdom be now. Awesome. Especially for me. That works for you too, great, but especially for me. That's the kind of kingdom we would design. The kingdom that is awesome. I think there are a couple reasons. First, in looking at the, the text here, Clearly, one of the reasons God does not make the kingdom that is awesome is that He doesn't have a king that's awesome. And He wants us to think, we need a better king, don't we? As far as earthly kings go, David's pretty awesome, and Solomon after him is pretty good too, but not. We need a better king and a better kingdom to come. And it sets us looking, 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 and longing. And similarly, that same response is what happens here now when the kingdom comes but is not yet what it's supposed to be. We we have the king. We, We do finally have the right king The cross and the tomb prove that. But this is not yet what it should be, so we are still longing for more. There must be more. And what it does in us, like it did in them back then, is create a looking to God and a hoping in God that one day you will fix it all. Send the King. You get in touch with the kingdom passing through your fingers now. What comes off you is, God, send the king. Do you not notice that in your own lives, in the lives of your friends, when when you're talking to someone who is experiencing brokenness and loss and emptiness and doubt, that what comes out of them is, I could go home today. That's what I'm talking about. You experience, this is the kingdom, but not yet what it should be. Oh, God, bring the kingdom or bring me to it if you won't come quite yet. And when you talk to somebody who's healthy, wealthy, and wise, it doesn't even occur to them to say, Lord, end it all right now. I'm enjoying this right now. So God purposes to run the kingdom like sand through our fingers, to teach us to long and to trust and to hope in Him to come, in that kingdom to come, and to be discontent with this one. There are probably other purposes because I'm not as smart as he is. There are surely other purposes. But those occur to me. Those are true. We have enough assurance now that the king has come. That this is, this is right. This is the kingdom. But it is not enough. It is not enough. And so we are sent longing for more and hoping for more. More of His kingdom to come now in me and to come fully one day. If you're a Christian, you are in the kingdom. And you know the kingdom has to be more than what you have. 
And that disconnect there makes you pray and hope. And that's good. Fastens you to God and loosens your attachment to the world. The kingdom has come truly, but imperfectly. So we already talked a little bit here. I've been moving a little bit towards how to live in that. Let me cross over to that right now, the second point. A question, how should we live in this imperfect kingdom? That's the second point, a question. How should we live in this imperfect kingdom? kingdom. And that's what sends me, in my mind, looking at these individuals here that are stuck in the middle to see what's going on with them. How they're approaching this this kingdom. First, we should think, as, as we already have been, our king is enthroned. And this isn't enough. So thankful and longing, thankful and hoping we look towards Him and say, bring the kingdom, Lord. I'm thankful for it now. I am in the kingdom. If you're a Christian, this is what you're saying. I am in the kingdom. I am a subject of your kingdom. By your power, by your will, and that is a really good thing. Think about that. There is something in this passage that might deceive us into thinking of democracy. The people debate, should we bring the king back or not? I don't know, what do you think? And they have a discussion about that. And then he appeals to them. Maybe he's campaigning. He appeals to them, hey, vote for me. It might feel like we're, it might feed into some of our biases perhaps, I should select this one as king. But when you talk the language of king and kingdom, you're not actually talking about voting. And when we speak the language of the kingdom of God, we are not talking about choice. There is a king who rules. And one thing that we, the subjects, that that word is not citizen, the subjects of the kingdom should be clear about is what kind of relationship we are in with him. Now, I'm pushing this one way on purpose. I'm pushing this in a way that might grate, might sound hard. Come back. I'll come back in a minute. I'm pushing this one way because we need to be clear what king and subject, not president and citizen, means. It casts lots of things in the Bible in a different light. Words like holiness and obedience. Commandment. We are subjects under a king right now. We don't have an option or or a choice about will I follow him, yes or no. We are ordered to. 
So, so Christian, we need to get, get that clear. But then we also need to look at this passage and see that this king who sits in the gate and gives instruction and says to that one, no, and says to this one, yes, you have half the land. Don't kill him. His order stands. That, that one, what's his demeanor in the passage? His demeanor is one of gracious peacemaking. His demeanor is one of, of a unifying gentle rest of this authority. That will not always be his demeanor. He will come again to judge the quick and the dead. But now, as he gives order and command, king and subject, press him this way, we should recognize he is an ordering king who gives command towards the end of a a unified people at peace, which is good for us, the subjects. He gives order and command for blessing. He could give order and command off with that guy's head and off with that guy's head and all of them, but he doesn't. Yet. He doesn't. We are subjects of a king who is intent on ruling to bless. So we should respond in line with a couple of these characters and not in line with another one of these characters. We should respond with hearts that are thankful and and submissive and hopeful in Him. We should respond positively seeing that He means to do me good. Thankful that He is going to exercise authority because I am a wreck. We are a wreck left to our own wisdom. The world is a wreck. Thank God there's a king who will give order and will make his will be done and will make his kingdom come for blessing. Thankful for that I am. Are you? If you see him as that kind of a king, then respond to him like Barzillai who gave him everything that he had when it looked unwise. The king's on the run. And this elderly, therefore not very powerful, rich man in the land where the other guy's army is currently living in Gilead says to the -the on-the-run king, here's my stuff. I'm with you. One does not do that if one thinks he's an evil king or he's a powerless king. Thank God that he is a king who commands and thank God he is a king who commands for my good. That means that I have good, sound support for giving him everything.
And what blessing resulted for Barzillai? The king gives him back his house and embraces him and kisses him and blesses him. You can't outgive the king. Obviously, you're talking about physical resources with, with this man, but I, but I mean to say your life. Give everything you have to the king, even when it appears unwise. His kingdom will come. He's a good king. And perhaps you might respond like Mephibosheth, seeing him to be a king who commands and who is good. Mephibosheth, contrary to Barzillai, has zero to give him. From before, we talked that Mephibosheth is a nobody. In a world in which power is physical, he can't stand up on his own. He's powerless. Those who had been gathered to him to do his bidding betray him. So he's left to sit longing and to to share in the king's hardship in what way he can by physically letting himself go as if he's wandering the desert. He has nothing to give the king but his heart. I don't care about all the resources. I don't care about the land. I don't care about the power that would be. If, if you give back to me, great, that's fine, David. Let him have it all, but I don't care. Now, the king has come back safely. What is Mephibosheth's love? Who is Mephibosheth's love? This is how a subject of the kingdom should live. He loves the king above all things. He has seen in this king, I have received from you, these are his words, undeserved favor. Me, my sons, my servants, we were dead men before you. We are sons of Saul. The sword hangs over our head. And you removed it and you brought me to your table to fellowship with me. Marvelous grace I have received from you. You are the one I love in response We love Him because He first loved us. Have you seen the love of this King who commands to bless? Have you experienced this blessing, this gracious kindness of this King? And does He have your heart? Even if you have nothing else tangible or or seemingly meaningful to give Him, do you love Him above all things? He is a lovely King. And lastly, be careful that you are not Shimei. I I debated back and forth whether or not to take these guys in order in the text and end with Barzillai or end with Shimei. Which way to go? Obviously, I chose one way. Because there is, I think, some need to warn. There are in in any assembly subjects of the kingdom, people who 
are beneath the king, not, not on the outside world against them who have no professed allegiance, but people who are, are beneath the king, who, who in word and in deed know what they are supposed to say and say it, and know how they are supposed to act and act it. Sometimes so well that it is hard for any of us to discern the difference. So I can only put it before you and, and ask... Are you genuinely Christ's? Are you genuinely in the heart a subject of the King? Or rather, has it proven prudent for you? Expedient for you? Useful to say, I am with them? Culturally conditioned. My family has always been Christian. I am too. What are you talking about? I'm not talking about was your family Christian. I'm saying, are you a Christian? And I'm not asking if you know what that means. I'm asking, are you one? Do you belong to Christ? Are you Mephibosheth? Loving Him above all things, entrusting yourself and your very life to this ruler. Are you Barzillai giving everything to Him when it seems completely foolish? And if not, you should examine yourself to see, am I rather than Shimei? Saying the right things, but in here, not given over, not surrendered. I cannot answer that for you. I can call you to look and I can hold up in front of you, Mephibosheth got the king and Barzillai was kissed and welcomed by the king. These are blessings, precious, precious, precious. And Shimei, in the end, got the sword. Tragedy. Be clear about it. The kingdom right now, the kingdom right now includes both wheat and tares. Wheat and tares. I think I got that right. In the end, though, they'll be plucked up and put in different places. So be aware of a wrath that is coming and flee from that. And please be aware of blessing that is offered, commanded by this king. Indeed, he is an authority. He will not let you run your own life. Thank God. He is an authority over you for your good, for great blessing. Run to him to enjoy him forever. Kiss in the embrace of the king, a seat at his table is offered to you now in this kingdom that has come. Take him up on it. Let me pray and then let you pray.
Lord, it is a good thing that You are God. Just to say it is a good thing that You are God. That You are in charge. Because the world is messed up. The world is messed up and we are messed up and I am messed up. And so I am thankful that You are at work in me and in us. That You hold my destiny and my my friends here. Your people, You hold us in Your hand and You promise to carry us to the kingdom in fullness. I'm thankful for that. I'm sure there are men and women here, boys and girls here right now, who face the challenges and the hardships of the kingdom that isn't what it's supposed to be. Would you give them hope and help to face this life now with you knowing that you hold it, knowing that you are doing something in it, and knowing that you will fix it all. Give them help. Lord, I pray even as all the, all the bells and whistles are going off in the congregation right now, and we are aware it's noon. Would you hold your people here for another moment and do business with them, whatever that is? We hold those who are not Christians and, and grip their attention and call them to you. We are before you in, in a dozen different places. Meet us, please, and minister to us now in these next few moments. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.